Well, as we continue on in worship now and turn our eyes towards God's Word, we are returning to our main series in the book of Isaiah. And so this morning we will be in Isaiah chapters 34 and 35. Now, as we look at Isaiah 34 and 35, they're kind of like two covers of a uh, book. The front cover of this book in Isaiah chapter 34 is all about God's judgment. And then chapter 35 is all about God's redemption, his redeeming grace. And so we're going to read a little section from chapter 34 and then a section from chapter 35 so that you can get a sense of what chapters 34 and 35 have to say to us. Now, the main theme of God's judgment and redemption is these chapters is just how absolute God's power is over all creation. And so after we read Isaiah 34 and 35, we'll read Genesis 1-1 to be reminded that God is indeed the creator of everything. And then we'll go to Genesis 3, 17 to 19 to see something of the curse that God has already laid upon creation and how that reflects his judgment that continues forward. And then finally, we'll go to 2 Peter 3, 5 to 10 to hear what the New Testament has to tell us about God's judgment and God's redemption. And so Brian Cottonzero will read for us from Isaiah, then Emily will read for us from Genesis 1, then Ryan from Genesis 3, and then Anna will come and read for us from 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me go ahead and pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that right now, even as your word is read, that our hearts would be open to be pricked by your word, God, that we would be changed as we read the truth that you have given to us. God, I also pray that as I preach your word, uh, would you just set your spirit upon me, Lord, to preach your word with both power and with truth, Lord, to call out faith in the lives of all those who hear. And so, God, would you Speak your word to us this morning, God, that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, not by the thoughts of man or the words of man, but by the thoughts and the words of you, our only God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Isaiah 35, 1-6 The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like this crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. 
Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Well, as we've just heard through those verses, we see that the Lord is both the judge of the whole earth and he is the creator of the whole earth and he is the redeemer of the whole earth. There's an old children's song that I hope you all learned as children. He's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, It's a very simple song, but it's a very profound song and a very beautiful song that he has the whole world in his hands. And you just sing that line again and again, reminding yourself that God indeed has the whole world in his hands. Now, it's so important for us as people to be reminded of this simple truth that the Lord has the whole world in his hands because there are always forces arrayed around us and within us that want to persuade us otherwise, that want to persuade us that the whole world is not in the Lord's hands. There's that old triad of the world and the flesh and the devil that are all constantly conspiring against us to tell us that the world is not in God's hands. Our flesh tells us that God can't have the whole world in his hands because whenever something bad happens to us, we think, well, a good God would never allow something bad to happen to me. Surely God can't be in control. The world cannot be in his hands. The world continues to tell us that the, that, that the whole world is not in God's hands because the world wants to make itself as the one that controls its own destiny. If God truly had the whole world in his hands, then that would mean that America doesn't have the whole world in its hands or Google doesn't have the whole world in its hands or scientists don't have the whole world in their hands. And yet the world wants to tell us that all these important and powerful people really do control everything and we really can trust them, that there's no need for a God above them. And so the world continually tells us that there is not a God in control, we are in control. Trust us. 
This is a sin that's as old as Babel, when the whole world came together to build a tower into heaven in order to declare their own greatness. And yet God, in his mercy, foiled that plan, reminding them that he truly is over all. And then lastly, the devil, of course, also wants to tell us that God does not have the whole world in his hands. Because the devil wants to continually insist the world belongs to him. In his foolish pride, he will not admit what is so plainly true that he cannot take one step apart from the Lord's permission. And so, in short, everything in creation apart from God is screaming to us that God does not have the whole world in his hands. And as a result, we are given over to fear and to anxiety because we do look around us and we see so many things that we think are bigger than God are more powerful than God, things that have displaced God himself. And we don't live in the joy and peace that God intends for his beloved children. And so even though all the world can seem to contradict him, even though all the world can seem to contradict God's word, even though our own experience can sometimes seem to contradict God's word, we are called as God's people to let God be true even though the whole world is a liar. We are called to stand up, face to the wind in this present age, and both believe and behave like God and God alone has the whole world in his hands. There is no clearer way for God to demonstrate that the whole world is in his hands than through his acts of judgment and salvation. Judgment is the dismantling, the tearing down, the destruction of the created order. Judgment is the anti-creation. Salvation is, of course, the opposite. Salvation is the renewal of creation, the recreation of everything that is good. In short, if God can demonstrate that he has the power and he alone has the power to both judge and to save, then he thereby demonstrates that the whole world is indeed in his hands. If he brings judgment and destruction and no one can stop him, then he must be over all. And at the same time, if he can bring order and renewal when nobody else possibly could, then he alone is again demonstrated to rule the world, to govern all things. And so this is the message of these chapters for us. The message is that God and God alone has the whole world in his hands, that he alone has the power to utterly destroy and to make life spring up from death. And therefore we must trust the Lord alone above all other things. You'll remember that the main problem in Israel that Isaiah has been responding to really throughout his book is simply a lack of trust in God. Israel, or Judah to be more precise, is in serious trouble. The kingship, the line of David that's been going on for a hundred years, seems to have petered out. Their kings no longer have wisdom. The nation is no longer energetic. Rather, they seem to be constantly victimized by the larger and more powerful nations around them. And in the face of all these nations around them, instead of trusting in God, 
Judah doubles down and they trust in the nations some more. They try to find other nations to fight bigger nations, hoping that in some way the things of earth will be able to save them from their troubles. They think that these powerful nations that exist on the earth truly have the whole world in their hands and God is at best an innocent bystander. And so Judah does not want to trust in the Lord. And so in chapter after chapter that we've been through, what we've seen is God pronouncing his judgment on one nation after another nation after another nation, trying to show the people of Judah that God really can be trusted, that he really is more powerful than all these other nations, all these other great forces that they want to trust in for their rescue. And so as we read all these chapters and as we read this chapter this morning, the question in our hearts should be, what is that force in the world that I think truly has everything under control? What is that thing that I am trusting in besides God, that thing that seems to rival God and its ability to control events and determine the destiny of the world? Beloved, is your hope this morning in the Lord? Where is your hope in something else besides the Lord? Do you believe that God indeed and God alone has the whole world in his hands? Or does something or someone else loom larger in your mind? One great question to ask yourself as you try to answer this is just to ask yourself the question, is my heart at peace? Because if you know you are a child of God, and if you know that God truly is in control over all things, then you will have a heart at peace. And so if you notice any trouble in your heart, any waters that seem to be churning below the surface, then you know that there is something in your life. Maybe you can't put your finger on it right now, but you know there is something in your life that you are holding up as a serious rival to God that is making you anxious and fearful. And so my hope, my prayer, is that as we look at this passage this morning, you will be persuaded deep down to your bones that God really is in control of everything. That there is nothing that you need to fear and no one whom you need to reverence more than the Lord himself as we see the Lord's judgment and salvation. And so there are three things in particular that I want us to see from this passage about God's power over judgment and salvation. First, I want us to see the extent of God's judgment and salvation, to see just how absolute his power is over all creation. Then I want us to look at the objects of God's judgment and salvation And then third and finally, I want us to look at the means of God's judgment and salvation. So that's where we're going now. We're going to look at the extent of God's judgment and salvation, the objects of his judgment and salvation, and the means of God's judgment and salvation. And my hope, again, is that when we see all these things, we will see that the Lord really is to be trusted above all other things and people. So first, the extent of God's judgment and salvation. If there's one message that comes through crystal clear in chapters 34 and 35, it is that God has absolute control over all the earth. The first way we see that God has absolute control over all the earth is in his absolute control over life itself. In chapter 34, verse 2, 
It says that God has devoted the nations, devoted them to destruction. He has given them over for slaughter. And so God has absolute control over life and death itself. If God takes someone's life in judgment, then there there is no one that can call him into the wrong. There is no one that can condemn him. He has absolute authority over life itself. His authority even extends to what happens to people after death. In verse 3 of chapter 34, it says, Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. Is there anything more helpless in all human existence than to not be able to bury your own loved ones, your own dead? Even to this day, in our anti-superstitious age, one of the worst things that could happen to a soldier or to an army in combat is to have someone fall in combat and to not be able to rescue them, to give them a proper burial. For someone to simply sit out and rot in their corpse is one of the worst fates that could possibly be suffered. And so for God to be able to say that he will let these corpses stay out and their stench shall rise, is to say that there is no one that can come and rescue, even in this most basic of human desires, that God has absolute authority. Going on in verse 3, it says, The mountains shall flow with their blood. The mountains are normally thought of as the source of great rivers, both from snowmelt and from springs. This is where fresh water comes from. It comes from the mountains. And so for God to say that the mountains shall flow with their blood is talking about the extent of judgment that God can wreak. He can do such a great, such a powerful judgment that the very source of fresh water itself, the mountains shall no longer give forth fresh water, but the mountains shall flow with blood. And so God's authority in judgment over life is absolute. There is no one who can rescue from his hand. God's authority and judgment is also absolute over creation itself. Go down to Isaiah 34, verse 9. It says, In the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. This talk about streams and soil and land is talking about God's ability to destroy creation itself. Those things that normally give life like streams and good soil, all of a sudden become sources of death as they become pitch and sulfur. In verse 13, it says that thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. And so those plants that humans seek to cultivate, that give us food, that give us health, no longer grow. And instead, the only thing that grows is the fruitless nettles and thistles. This reminds us of those words of judgment in Genesis chapter 3, where God promised that thorns would come up instead of fruitful abundance. So God even has this authority over what plants will grow. Probably the most absolute statement of God's authority over creation comes in the second half of verse 11 of chapter 34. It says, He shall stretch the line of confusion over it 
and the plumb line of emptiness. Those words for confusion and emptiness, tohu and wabohu, are the same words in Genesis 1-2 for the earth being formless and void. The emptiness of creation before God filled it with good things. And so Isaiah 34 is clearly presenting God in his work of judgment as entirely undoing all of the good of creation. All the good things that he filled it with, he is again reverting to emptiness and void. God has absolute power over creation. And this theme is again reinforced through one of the most peculiar aspects of this passage, and that is how many animals are named in this passage. If you look at verses 11 and 13 and 14 and 15, they all name a host of different animals. And so the first half of verse 11 says, But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. The second half of verse 13 says, It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And then go on into 14 and 15. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds place for herself and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. What's the meaning of naming all of these animals that will fill this empty space created by the judgment of God? Well, I think the purpose, again, is to remind us that this is essentially a work of uncreation. All these animals are reminding us that God is indeed the creator of everything. You may even think back to the work of judgment in Noah's Ark, where God brought the animals together on the ark to save them. Only here, God is bringing the animals to show that he is indeed Lord and it is only these wilderness animals that will be able to inhabit the place of God's judgment. God is so detailed in his judgment that we read in verse 17, still talking about the animals, he has cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. And so God has such control over creation that even these individual animals, the hawk and the owl and the ostrich and the jackal, are given specific homes in this wilderness as evidence of God's severe judgment. And then finally, we see that God's power is absolute in judgment over society itself. In chapter 34, verse 12, Isaiah says, Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. And so whatever people remain after this enormous judgment of God, those people cannot even form a kingdom, they cannot form a government. Even those who consider themselves powerful in that land, will be as nothing because they have nothing that they have power over. And so we see in this a picture of God's absolute power over the earth. Again, compare that to those who in Isaiah's day thought truly had power over the earth, the nations like Assyria or like Babylon. Even though those nations could certainly come in and destroy a city, 
Their power cannot compare to the destructive power of God that is spoken of in all these verses. They have no power to leave out corpses. They have no power to make sure wild animals move in, each to its precise spot. They have no power to make sure that no kingdom will be there from generation to generation. Even the most powerful forces are weak as compared to God himself. And so if this is God's power over judgment, then what is God's power over salvation? Well, we see that just as God has power over destruction and judgment in all these ways, so God has power over life and salvation in all these ways. In Isaiah 35, verse 10, it says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So just as God had power on the one hand in judgment to bring about absolute death and decay and destruction, now at the opposite end of the spectrum, God actually has the power to bring about singing and joy and gladness. And he brings it to this ransomed of the Lord that shall return. And so God has this absolute power to this place where there is formerly only sadness and destruction to bring life and singing. His power over creation in salvation is also seen. And so if you look at the two, first two verses of chapter 35, It says, the wilderness and dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And so in this place that was wilderness, all of a sudden there are blossoms appearing. The glory of Lebanon refers to these tall cedars. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon refers to fertile plains that are suddenly bursting with fruitful crops. And so just as God alone has the power to absolutely destroy, God alone has the power to make creation come alive again, to give newness to it. God's power over creation is seen further in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so all of these disabilities, these handicaps that might befall people, God is able to utterly reverse them. Even if they were born In that way, God is not hindered by any of that. And then in verses 7 and 9, we again see the animals referred to again. In verse 7, we see, In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And then in verse 9, It's saying, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. 
And so again, God's power over all creation, even over the animals themselves, is shown. And there are no ferocious beasts in this land of the redeemed, in this place of salvation. Rather, there is only beauty and flourishing and harmony. And then God is also regenerating society itself, as we saw in verse 10, when he says, The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Zion was the city of Jerusalem itself. And so there will be this beautiful city where there are returning, redeemed people coming in and filling up this city once again. So we have a God here who is able to bring both absolute destruction and judgment, but he is also able to bring perfect life, perfect peace, perfect health. God's power in judgment and salvation is absolute. There is no one that compares to his ability to destroy, and there is no one that compares to his ability to rebuild and to restore. This is the extent of God's power over judgment and salvation. Second, I want us to look at the objects of God's judgment and salvation. We first see in chapter 34, verses 1 and 2, that the objects of God's judgment is indeed the whole earth. Isaiah begins his proclamation in chapter 34 by saying, Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. God has the entire earth under the view of his judgment because of how they have rejected him, and not only the whole earth. If you go on to verse 4 of chapter 34, it says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up, Like a scroll, all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine. The host of heaven is no doubt talking about those spiritual beings that inhabit the place of God's residence, the heavens themselves. And Isaiah is saying that God's judgment will cover not only the whole earth, but God's judgment comes to the host of heaven themselves, that they shall rot away. And the skies shall roll up like a scroll. And so the objects of God's judgment are everything on earth and everything in the heavens. There is nothing that can escape God's judgment. We are reminded of Jesus' words that encourage us not to fear man who can only kill the body but do nothing to destroy the soul. But rather fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. God's judgment is over all heaven and earth, all the nations of the earth. These nations are embodied with the name of one nation in particular in verses 5 and 9. If you look at verse 5, it says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Now, Edom was the children of Esau. 
And if you remember the story of Esau, he was born with Jacob. They were twins and they were both fighting in the womb. And ever since then, ever since their very genesis in the womb, Edom has been at war. Esau has been at war with the people of God. And so when Isaiah is pronouncing judgment here upon Edom, he is saying that Edom represents all the nations of the earth. Because all the nations of the earth have taken their role, have taken their position in opposing God and opposing his purposes. So ultimately, who is it that will come under judgment? It is Edom. It is those who oppose God and his ways who will come under this judgment of God. And as the rest of 34 makes very clear, to some extent, all the earth, all the nations have come under the influence of Edom and are opposing God and his ways. And therefore, all the nations of the earth need to fear. Now, on the other hand, who are the objects of God's salvation? And here is a remarkable thing, that even though we are told that all the nations are under the judgment of God, even though Isaiah's message goes out to all the nations and even the host of heaven, we see that those who are saved, those who are the objects of God's salvation, are those who are weak and those who are helpless. And so in Isaiah 35, verses 3 and 4, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Who does he save? Those with weak hands and feeble knees and an anxious heart. Think that what Isaiah is communicating here is is that it is those who know their weakness, those who know their smallness, those who know their iniquity in light of the God of the universe who will be saved. As opposed to Edom and the nations of the earth that are proud and arrogant, thinking that they can compete with God. No, it is not those who are proud, thinking that they are strong and able to do great things, who will be saved. They are the ones who will be judged. The ones who will be saved are those who have the weak hands and the feeble knees and the anxious heart. This is repeated again in verses 5 and 6, when it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, And the tongues of the mute sing for joy. And so it is the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute who are receiving God's salvation. In other words, it is those who acknowledge that they have nothing that will be given everything. The objects of God's salvation are not those who deserve it. Again, it is not the pride, the proud and the arrogant. It is those who know that they are weak, those who know that they are blind and deaf. They are the ones who will receive the great mercy of God. And then lastly, what is the means of God's judgment and salvation? 
Well, in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 34, we are told the means of God's judgment. So in verse 5 of Isaiah 34, it says, My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. All of this language of the sword coming for animals like lambs and oxen and goats is the language of sacrifice. Indeed, verse 6 even says that the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. In other words, the judgment of God, the means of God's judgment, is precisely the sword of sacrifice. When God takes the life of someone who is wicked, it is ultimately a work of sacrifice. It is their sins that have brought judgment upon them. And when God kills them, when he slays them, it is an act of ritual cleansing. It is removing that which is evil from the land, removing that which is evil from the eyes of God. And so it is the sword of judgment, the wrath of God upon injustice and unrighteousness that is the means of God's judgment. Now, on the other hand, what is the means of God's salvation? What is the means of his mercy? Well, remarkably, throughout chapter 35, we are not given any reason whatsoever for this enormous salvation of God that he is offering. The only thing that we can possibly attribute this salvation to is the sheer generosity of God. Again, just start in verse 1 of chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. Well, why should the wilderness and the dry land be glad? Why should the desert rejoice? There is no reason why they should. They are wilderness. They are desert. They have nothing with which to give joy or gladness. They have nothing to commend themselves with. That is the definition of wilderness and desert. And yet God in his great generosity, comes and he tells the wilderness, he tells the desert, I will make you glad. Again, I think this is the clear message of verses 5 and 6, when it says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened, ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Can anyone tell me why it is that the blind will be able to see? Or the deaf will be able to hear, or the lame man walk, or the mute sing. There is no reason why any of these things should happen. That is the point of using the blind and the deaf and the lame and the mute as his example. Is that they have no way to sing or to walk or to see. And yet God simply does it. The only reason we can have for salvation is the absolute, unmerited mercy of God. 
when we recognize that we are just like those blind, those lame, those mute, when we confess that we have nothing and that we are nothing, then we set ourselves up for precisely what God wants to do. And what he wants to do is to be glorified in his generosity to us. Is to say, I save you, I redeem you, I give you life, not because of some great thing that you have done, but because you acknowledge that you can do nothing and I must do everything. And so the whole posture of the ones who are saved, the, the way that these individuals get saved is not through anything in themselves, is not through anything that they have done, Rather, it is through the sheer mercy and favor and generosity of God himself. And so in this way, you can see a great asymmetry between the judgment of God and the salvation of God. Whereas the judgment of God is entirely merited because of the evil actions that bring upon the sword of sacrifice of God, Salvation is entirely unmerited. There is nothing that man has done to make this desert suddenly blossom. And yet, Isaiah does leave us in these chapters with an enormous question, does he not? If all the nations and even the host of heaven deserve God's judgment, if they all deserve to be given over as lambs and goats and oxen, then how is it that God does come in chapter 35 and pour out all of this abundance? And of course, the glorious thing that we see in the New Testament is that the ultimate means for God's redemption is the same means as God's punishment. Namely, it is that sword of sacrifice. And yet the way that it can be salvation for us is that that sword of sacrifice, that vast and enormous judgment fell upon Jesus Christ instead of falling upon us. So that God's perfect justice has been done. His wrath has been fully poured out on the Son of God himself. So that now we can be like those blind, deaf, lame, mute who get to sing for joy and leap for joy. Because this terrifying wrath of God has not come upon us. It has been laid upon him. And again, God gives Jesus himself out of his own generous heart. There is nothing that we have done. There is nothing that any human being ever did to deserve this salvation being sent by God. The only reason we can give for the coming of Jesus Christ and his bearing the wrath of God for us is the sheer generous mercy of God. And so in this way, beloved, we see that the that the Lord truly does have the whole world in his hands. He has absolute authority to judge whom he will and to save whom he will. He is able to bring absolute destruction upon life, upon creation, upon society. 
And he has absolute and perfect power to bring life, to bring joy, to bring new creation, to bring flourishing. And our only hope in the end is that blood that was shed by the Son of God. That we trust that the world will not be given over only to judgment, but the world will one day be given over entirely to salvation. That all of creation will be made new. And so again, beloved, what is there in your heart, what is there in your mind that rivals the greatness of this judgment or the greatness of this salvation? Is there anything or anyone more powerful than this God? Is there any hope greater than the hope that this God can give to us? Again, it will be a battle for us every day as we read the news, as we see the problems within our own heart, as we want to have solutions that are more at hand to us. And yet, the call of Isaiah is to trust in the Lord because no one can bring about judgment like he can and no one can bring about salvation like he can. And because he can bring about this great judgment and this great salvation, we know that we can hope fully in the Lord and we have nothing to fear that the Lord himself cannot resolve. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see the enormity of your judgment and the enormity of your salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how this judgment and this salvation truly are greater than any other trouble that could befall us and they are greater than any other reward that we could gain. And so, Father, we pray that because of that, you would be the foundation of our lives. There would be nothing that rivals you in our hearts. And so, Lord, I ask that as we come to you right now with our prayers of confession and petition, that you would help us to perceive those things in our hearts that we are fearing, that we are trusting, that we are hoping in besides you. And God, would you also help us even now to pray in the Spirit, interceding for the nations, that all may come to know Jesus Christ. And so God, would you receive now our prayers of confession and petition to you.